welcome to the Equine Connection Podcast, where health, nutrition, and love for the horse come together. This podcast is brought to you by Tribute Superior Equine Nutrition. I'm Dr. Chris Mortensen. And I'm Dr. Nicole Rambo. Welcome back, Nicole. It's great to see you. It's great to see you as well, Chris. Oh, so I mean, this is episode 97. We're inching towards our 100th. This is great. Big anniversary coming up. It is. It is. It is. And I guess you have a little bit of news or we want to maybe save it for the 100th episode. Uh, Well, we will just kind of plant the seed that we will be doing some fun things for our 100th episode. So you will definitely want to tune into that one. Okay. 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 But yeah, this is great. I mean, a hundred episodes, a lot of it focused on equine nutrition. I know we have a, a solid audience around the world listening. So thank you to everybody that tunes in each week to learn about how to care, care for your horses. And today's episode, I mean, it seems like there's so much to talk about, but hindgut microbes, really, when you start drilling down into it, this, this is like one of the most critical things of equine nutrition, isn't it? Or one of them. Oh, it is. And it's it's yeah. one that we, we don't know enough about. It's actually, it, it's a really cool area of research that we're, we're learning more. But when you look at the history of it for a long time, it's just kind of this mysterious black box that was the hindgut of the horse. And we knew it did important stuff, but we didn't necessarily know exactly how it happened in there. I know. Isn't it? Just to start this off, I mean, I'm going to ask you, you know, a brief overview of the hindgut microbes in the horse, but just very quickly because reading you know not just the scientific literature but popular press isn't the gut microbe or microbiome like a really hot topic in health and human health too right oh absolutely yeah it's been yeah. a major focus of research across multiple livestock species and humans there's there's so much more to learn there but it's a super exciting topic yeah it is it really is like it's like breaking 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 with nutrition and health okay so can you just give a brief overview of the hindgut microbes in the horse? I mean, what are they and, and where are they located? Yes. Okay. So we talk about this a lot in super broad terms. And I think today's topic is fun that we're going to drill down a little bit deeper to maybe give some context to why it's so complicated. So when we think about the hindgut of the horse, you were talking about where fermentation happens. Okay. And it's these microbes that do the fermentation. So it's the cecum, the large colon, to a lesser extent, the small colon of the horse. That makes up a huge proportion of the horse's total digestive tract capacity. And then there's actually a lot of different things that live in those compartments that we broadly talk about as the microbial community of the hindgut of the horse. There are our billions of quote unquote bugs that live back there. So kind of thinking about like the order that we actually identified them, um, the history is, is really cool. So going back all the way to the 1800s, they first recorded protozoa that lived in the cecum of the horse. And the reason that protozoa were identified pretty early is because they're a really big molecule compared to some of the other stuff that lives in the hindgut. Uh, You also have bacteria. This is going to be the majority of the population. Uh, First kind of recorded in the literature in the early 1900s. Our ability to identify the actual bacteria that live there has tremendously increased because for a long time we knew bacteria lived in the hindgut of the horse, but they were primarily anaerobic, meaning we couldn't culture them until we had more advanced techniques. 
The other one that we hear about kind of the big three, the third one would be fungi. So, you know, these were identified in the 1930s, low concentration, but hypothesized to have a pretty high impact on fiber digestibility. Those would be the big three ones, but actually kind of neat, two smaller subsets that have been identified much more recently. You have your bacteriophages discovered in the 1970s. You know, we we don't know exactly what they do. Um, We suspect they may help regulate the different bacterial species and where they're distributed in the hindgut. We don't know for sure. So going back to that whole black box thing. And then, you know, the most recent ones were identified in 1996. These are methanogens. Um, So they produce methane. Um, And they may boost how cellulolytic bacteria, the ones that break down cellulose, actually work. Um, But again, not one we know a ton about. And you know, it also doesn't mean we might not discover more stuff that lives and works in the hindgut of the horse. That's just what we know about so far. And here's the thing. I'm, I'm sitting there listening to you talk about it. And, and, you know, going back to early, early days studying horses. And when you hear bacteria, you know, we, we, we instantly think, oh, that's bad. Because our whole life is, you know, wash our hands. And you know, even after all this COVID pandemic, we're all nervous about all the bugs out there. So how... Can they be beneficial with these bugs in the gut, inside the animal? What are they doing? What's the purpose of them? Ah, so that's a good question because there's actually good and bad bugs. So if you, for example, have ever had a horse um, who had an acute diarrhea episode and your vet sends off a diarrhea panel to try to learn like what's causing this, there, there are some bad bacteria that are on that panel that you're ruling out by doing that bacterial culture of that feces. So it's, there's not all good bugs. Um, but, you know, primarily you have this population of what are called commensal bacteria, meaning they work in concert with the host, the host being the horse, and they're providing a really important role. They're breaking down fiber. And we know fiber is the bulk of the horse's diet. The crazy thing is the horse itself doesn't really digest the fiber. Horses don't have the enzymes to break down cellulose and hemicellulose. So these bacteria that live in the hindgut of the horse, we're primarily focusing on the hindgut of the horse. There are some bacteria that live in other places too, but they're less consequential than the hindgut population. But these bacteria they have this role of breaking down fiber that produce end products that the horse can actually use. So the fiber itself is not digested by the horse. It's broken down by these bacteria that make other end products the horse actually uses. So it's this kind of symbiotic relationship between good bacteria and the horse itself. And by having this healthy population, you're less likely to have quote unquote bad bacteria be able to move in, proliferate and cause negative things that happen in the horse's hindgut. So you talk about them breaking down these feedstuffs. So what are, what are the byproducts? What, how is that useful? What are they absorbing? So the major byproduct of fiber fermentation in the horse are what are called VFAs or volatile fatty acids. The primary ones are going to be acetate, propyridate, and butyrate. There's actually like a whole long list after that. Um, but the big three are the ones we focus on the most and the ones that we're most likely to measure if we're doing a study to see how a feedstuff or something impacts 
the hindgut of the horse. So volatile fatty acids provide anywhere from 50 to 70% of the horse's energy needs. So think about the wild horse who is out grazing. The majority of their diet is fiber. I mean, they might be getting some starch from like natural seeds they're eating out on the plains or whatever, or our easy keeper only on pasture. Well, the majority of that fiber can't be broken down by the horse. So the bacteria do that, create these volatile fatty acids that then support the horse's energy needs. So we have acetate, a major source of energy for skeletal muscles at rest, um, helps replete glycogen, which is our source of energy when a horse is working anaerobically. Uh, it's also converted into fat, both fat storage, so maintaining body condition score of the horse itself, turned into fat in milk. So the lactating mare would take acetate, which is produced in the hindgut from hay, put it into her milk, which then feeds her foal. Propionate, it's our primary gluconeogenic precursor. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Basically, there are certain tissues or functions in the body that have to have glucose. So I know we've talked tons about sugars in the horse and how they're not a great thing and too great a quantity for a lot of different horses. But there are some things that have to be fueled by glucose. And so the body's able to take the propionate that's produced in the hindgut of the horse, sends it to the liver turns it into glucose to send to the brain, for example, that needs glucose to function. And then the third one you have is butyrate. Uh, This one's pretty cool. A lot of it's used locally by the actual lining of the hindgut itself. So in situations where we may have concerns about damage to the hindgut, like a right dorsal colitis, I might make a dietary recommendation to shift a little bit more of our VFA production towards butyrate in order to make sure there's plenty of fuel to help heal those cells lining the hindgut, for example. So that would be the major thing that's made. But thinking back to just a couple podcasts ago, we talked about another byproduct in the hindgut, which would be our B vitamins, something that we don't necessarily have to provide in the feed because those microbes are actually making the B vitamins, which are then absorbed and used by the horse. Yeah, they're amazing. The, these microbes, they do so much for the horse. And when you talk about upwards of 70% of their energy requirements, daily requirements is provided by the hindgut. It, it's just, it, it, it's fascinating because we always just think grain, you know, that's where we're getting the energy. And it's like, no, forage, right? Forage. That's why you keep pushing forage down their throat. Forage Feed. first all <laughs> yes. the time. Yes. <laughs> well, one thing I read about him, and you may be able to help me out this because you're the nutritionist. Amino acids, do they provide amino acids, these bugs? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. The short answer is not really. That's why I didn't bring them up originally. But I think it's a great question because you can provide a little bit more context here. So this is something studied extensively in our ruminants. So the cow, for example, who has that fermentation vat in the front of their digestive system versus the horse who has it in the back of their digestive system. So in addition to making volatile fatty acids and vitamins, another thing that's produced by microbes is called microbial crude protein. So they take protein that is incoming, chop it all up, use it themselves, spit it out in a different form. In cattle, for example, this is a major source of their protein needs, but that's because that occurs in the front part of the digestive system. So it goes from the rumen into the stomach, and then it flows into the small intestine where you have actual amino acid absorption. That's where the vast majority of those transporters exist. 
The same process of making microbial crude protein happens in the hindgut of the horse as well. The difference is there is not much going on in the rest of the digestive tract of the horse, right? You're pretty close to the back end. So there's been some really interesting research that did some radioisotope labeling. So it's where you can actually take a specific molecule, tag it with a radioactive label, and you can trace where it goes. So if you infuse that directly in the cecum of the horse, for example, you could actually trace, does the radioisotope just end up in the manure? Is it absorbed and end up in the blood or excreted in the urine? And what they ultimately found is there's like a really tiny, tiny amount of absorption. So the actual contribution of amino acids coming from the hindgut of the horse is probably only one to 5%. So from that standpoint, the biological relevancy of the composition of the amino acids coming from microbial synthesis of protein, it's really very, very small. So when I think functionally about what I'm doing to support the horse's protein needs, I'm really just focused on the quality of the protein in the feed itself, the amino acid composition, and focused on providing forms that'll get absorbed in the small intestine. Because here's the other thing, and we haven't done the research to even understand this in the horse, because in a sense, it probably doesn't matter, right? Because most of it ends up coming out the back end of the horse. But if I feed certain protein or amino acids to the microbes, they're going to turn it into something else. Is that something else actually what I want absorbed into the horse? Uh, So it's a pretty complicated question. But ultimately, in terms of protein, we're really not factoring that microbial protein synthesis into the needs of the horse because it'd be very difficult to quantify and then get the right stuff where it needs to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it makes sense. It makes sense. All right. So earlier you alluded to this good versus bad bacteria. And I, this is where a lot of things can go wrong. And, and we've done some podcasts on this. You know, we talk about hindgut acidosis, ulcers, colic, all of these things. What happens? What, what causes this shift from good to bad bacteria? Anything that stresses that population. Always. So, you know, the major one that's been studied would be big shifts in diet composition. So the classic example is the horse who breaks into the green room and eats 30 pounds of sweet feed and then experiences colic, possibly an endotoxemia related laminitis as well. And that's a function of what happens in the hindgut. We've also seen some of our research examples. If you go back to when we talk about pasture associated laminitis, how you can create laminitis by like infusing massive amounts of sugars or fructans into the hindgut of the horse. Not usually what's actually happening in pasture associated laminitis, but basically a big shift there can cause rapid fermentation. So when we feed it stuff like sugar or starch, especially if it's not used to it and we feed it in a large amount, we have microbes that already live there, like your streptococcus strains. They're there in a relatively small amount and they go, oh my God, you fed me. And their byproducts, a lot of it's lactic acid, another one of our volatile fatty acids, drive down pH because they create a lot of it really quickly. And when they drive that pH down, A, they create more of themselves. So now they've created an environment where they really thrive. So like the streptococcus population and some other ones as well really takes off. 
At the same time, they kill off a lot of your fiber digesting bacteria that like a much higher pH, a pH range higher, more like seven. So all of a sudden you have this rapid shift in those microbes. It really drops pH. And when you're killing off what we call some of the good bacteria, those fiber digesting bacteria, you're releasing toxins as they die, which is where you get those endotoxemia mediated events. So that would be a really, really dramatic example of these sort of things. You can sometimes see that in a less dramatic example. Maybe it's not the horse who breaks into the feed room, but you're feeding eight pounds per meal of a high NSC sugary sweet feed. That's probably not going to cause a one-time acute episode of colic, but we do know if you're an average size horse, that's more feed than they can really digest efficiently in a single meal. Some of that starch is getting back there. And then you're not going to have the massive population explosion, but you're going to have a larger population of those starch digesting bacteria that like that lower pH. And you might see things like reduced fiber digestibility because you've killed off part of your fiber digesting bugs, or some hindgut acidosis type issues if that pH stays low for a long enough time. So it's a really complicated uh, community that lives back there, and it can adjust to shifts. It's just it can't necessarily adjust to really big shifts, and we know we can't maintain it at super low pHs for any duration of time. Um, it's not good for the bacteria that live in the hindgut itself. So... You, you just, one of the, the things I was going to ask you is, you know, what slowly shifting diet. I know we've talked about that in the past, you know, over two to three weeks, if you can, uh, so those bugs can shift with the new diet, right? But what are some of the other things people can do to help or maintain that hindgut microbial population, uh, you know, keeping it in the right balance, good versus bad? So one thing I would say, definitely a slower shift in your feed. I usually do seven to 14 days. Your horse would have to be pretty sensitive to go to three weeks, not saying it doesn't exist. Also making a slower switch in your hay, right? That's the bulk of the horse's diet, particularly if you're going from like a really stemmy hay to one that's like really soft and, you know, like high powered hay that can create a pretty dramatic shift, even though you're just talking about a shift in the different good bugs. So I think one thing you have to realize is that there are billions of things that live back there. And it's not that just one, you know, ruminococcus digests fiber and, you know, lactobacillus digests something else, whatever. You have all of these bacteria that work together as well as the protozoa and the fungi and so on. And they each do little jobs. So like ruminococcus does digest fiber, but it's specifically cell wall degradation. A different bacteria would work on the cell contents, things like that. So even when we're shifting fiber to fiber, you can see some upsets in those different populations. I, I mentioned, of course, stress and like, oh my God, how do you prevent stress in the horse? Everybody <laughs> you can't. Stresses the horse. You can't. Yeah, you can't. So, you know, one of the things we did as a model when we were looking at different probiotics, which I'll talk about more in a second, was we used trailering as a stress model. And you can actually see that when horses are trailered, the composition of their hindgut population will shift in response to that because it's a stressful event. So the particularly strain of probiotic that we chose, we chose because it helps stabilize it during that stress. So probiotics are what we call live microbes that are good and help support a healthy population in the hindgut. You can combine those prebiotics, which are not 
live things, um, but they're actual nutrients that feed the bugs themselves. So they don't feed the mammalian host. They go to the hindgut, help support that population. As an example of that, you know, there are certain branch chain amino acids um, or different functional nutrients that really help support a really healthy population in the hindgut. So those would be two big ones. Um, certainly slow changes, picking an appropriate feed stuff. So if we have to feed eight pounds of sweet feed per meal, that, that's just not the right choice of feed. I'd, I'd suggest something lower NSC, higher fat. Let's get the meal size smaller, uh, support things like pre and probiotics. So a lot of it, I mean, I know this is a really science dense topic, but it, it comes back to what we know is like foundational horse management to help support that healthy hindgut. This is all the reasons we we give on how to manage these horses because we're we're really thinking you know not just uh, I mean obviously thinking of the whole horse but these microbes too that are just so sensitive to everything. So any other final tips? I mean, one of the things I, th- I thought of was like you know constant comfort if if there's a stressful event or you know they're going to be trailered, is that something you can do prophylactically, like feed them a, a day or two before and throughout the duration of it? Say you're, you're, you're going to Congress, I know that's coming up, or some show event. Is that is that something you could do just in the short term to, to kind of blunt that stressful event? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, nope, that, that's a very viable strategy. We build pre and probiotics into all of the tribute feeds uh, because we recognize horses are stressed by things all the time. Um, but certainly in an added boost during those times is not a bad idea. You know, in terms of like final things, one thing I want to point out, I mean, there's some some really cool research that's going on. Um, you could like send off your horse's um, feces for like a microbiome panel, which, which sounds really cool. This is an emerging area. Um, so just talking about the how complicated it is, like we talk about the hindgut as one big place. In reality, it's multiple compartments. And even in some of those compartments, there's different populations that live in different places, different types of diversity. You know, there's there's more protozoa in one part of the hindgut than other parts of the hindgut. And, you know, the fecal microbiota stuff is really cool. Um, it doesn't necessarily correspond directly with what lives in different parts of the hindgut. So there's been some cool research there that shows that like, yeah, it doesn't really do a good job of identifying what's in the cecum, but it's pretty close to what's in the right dorsal colon. Um, And we don't really know yet what changes in those mean. You know, there's been research that looks at changes in fecal microbiota, you know, diversity increased with age in one study, but decreased with age in another. Um, There's changes with chronically obese ponies, but like if you decrease their body condition score to healthy, it doesn't necessarily change back, but we don't really know what that means. So Ultimately, I think this is a great area for a lot of continued research, Uh, but be mindful that like you as a horse owner should primarily be focused on the good horse husbandry practices, good basic feeding, and maybe don't get too worried about like, oh, this test says my horse has more uh, streptococcus or fibrobacter, enterococcus, whatever, because we don't really know yet what all of that means. We just know we can change it sometimes. And if we change it too fast, that's not good. But like is a larger population of Y better than X? That's the stuff we still need to learn. Yeah. Well, I, one thing, if if you're one of those that are, is, are feeding 
eight pounds of sweet feed <laughs> sitting and you need help or you are concerned about what you're feeding your horse, don't forget in our show notes, there is a link, a free consultation with our nutritional experts uh, to help you design a feed plan for your horse. So please don't ever forget that because I know these topics get a little, whoa, and it's overwhelming because uh, the high gut microbes are, can be overwhelming. You know, like Nicole just said, it is a very dense topic, but very, very critical to your horse's overall well-being. So thank you, Nicole. Great topic today. Thank you to our listeners. Just a reminder, this is episode 97. So mm-hmm. tune in to episode 100. Uh, there'll be something good in there for you. And please share this with your horse enthusiast friends. We see people doing that. Thank you. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Please send in topic ideas. You know, we, we every month we sit down and we, we listen to what people have requested and we add it to our list of topics to cover. But thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you, Chris. <laughs>